0: This is the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. Today, Teaching Minister Tim Peace will be teaching the message. Good morning. How you all doing today? Awesome. My name is Tim Peace, and I'm the Teaching Minister here at Mount Carmel. Glad that you're uh, here this morning at the, uh, I think this is the 1030 service. Um, I I was telling last service so I've had a coffee problem lately. I've probably always had one, but it's been worse as of late. My son is creeping up on seven months, which is like time flies. But you know, it doesn't fly is time without sleep. (laughs) Like he's still. I mean, he's getting. You know, he's getting better, and that's not a complaint because you know. And this is just, this is the truth. It is funny how you can like one moment be like, why do I have to get out of bed at this ungodly hour? But then suddenly you see his face and you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, but the bad thing about it though is, is like I still have to like live during the daytime. And so that requires a lot of coffee right now. In fact, this morning, I was very, very clearly like, on coffee. In fact, is, this is funny, I was pacing so much during the first service that <laughs> Dee had to text me and said, stay in the light, which I thought that was like a, I, I thought that was like I was going to the dark side of the force or something like that. And then I realized, oh, you mean, so that I'm not, you know, over here, hi guys, sort of thing. So. But anyway, so yeah, I have become acquainted with all of the coffee places around town. All the Starbucks, all the new coffee shops, all the old ones. And uh, actually, uh, last service, my friends Aaron and Aaron, A.A. Ron and Erin, just so that they can be differentiated, had to literally stop me from drinking coffee one day a couple weeks ago because I was really, really buzzing from it. And so, I think I'm calming now. And, uh, but the thing is I was at a coffee shop this week, one of my many stops and I was just checking out, it was a new place that's in town. And I was looking at the, uh, the stuff that was on the counter and they had this little like placard and the placard had a, uh, um, had an interesting saying. It said, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. And I thought, man, that's a, that's a nice saying, you know. We all love nice sayings. And and so I, I thought I, for a moment, I literally was thinking, I was like, well, you know something, I think I'm gonna try to be kind today because most days I, I don't try. Um, but today I'm gonna try to. And, uh, and I thought that was nice. But then then I got to thinking about the, the nature of a a short saying like that. And the fact that we live in a world that's so fast paced and, and, and we, we take everything in in bits and pieces. That's why social media is all the rage because you literally can get a piece of information in 280 characters. Or nowadays, you know, you can text each other in emojis. And I have to admit, I may be an elder millennial, but I, don't, I can't read emojis. I'm just being real. Like, I don't know what they mean most of the time. I'm like, is this a new form of hieroglyphics? Are we going back to Egypt? So... Um, So anyway, so I started thinking about the the nature of like, why is it that these little sayings really work for us? And then, well, then I started to evaluate the saying itself. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. What is that little placard actually saying? Well, it's saying, number one, that you can be anything that you want in the world, which, you know, um, me and... Even younger people, we grew up hearing the message that we can be anything that you want. My mommy told me that. Um, And so it's not true. But anyway, um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So anyway, so I started to think about that side. But then I thought about the be kind part of it. And then it hit me because I had been studying for uh, the message this morning as we're continuing on in the story of Jonah and I thought about the idea that I can just choose to put on a particular behavior and do it. It takes a pretty hefty worldview shift to actually get to that place where you actually look at that line and think, well, that makes sense. And the worldview goes a little like this. Um, I can mo- modify my behavior anytime. To be a good person. Now, I can choose not to and not be kind, but if I look at that sign, just by the prompting of that sign, I can decide I'm going to be kind today. And so maybe I'll hold the door for somebody, or, uh, you know, not say mean things to the person driving next to me, or, you know, fill in the blank. And I, as I was thinking about this, I realized that a worldview that says that I can just put on a different behavior at at the snap of a finger and just be a changed person is a really faulty worldview in light of what Scripture teaches. In fact, what Scripture teaches is, is very, very counter to that. What Scripture teaches is that because of our sinfulness and the brokenness in our lives that come with that sinfulness, we actually can't just modify our behavior and suddenly become a good person. In fact, because of sin, our inclination tends to be to continue to sin. Now, on occasion, we're capable of doing some good things because I believe we were created in God's image. We are created good. There's potential there. But we can't just do things and change things on our own. And So I I was thinking about that, and I think that worldview shift is really going to be important for us as we look at Jonah chapter 3 this morning. So to bring you up to speed, if you missed week 1 or week 2, I want to tell you what's happened so far. So the story of Jonah is really, really fun and fascinating. Number 1, you've got this guy Jonah. He's a prophet of God. We are introduced to him at the very beginning in verse 1, and in verse 2, God tells Jonah Go to Nineveh and preach this message that I have. And it's a message of coming destruction. Now, Jonah, being the good prophet that he is, says, no, I don't want to do that. That's exactly how he said it. And he goes and boards a ship and goes the opposite direction that God wants him to go, to go off to a place called Tarshish. And when he's aboard the ship, God decides, this guy's running from me and that's not cool, so I'm going to batter the ship with a storm. And so the sailors, they're up on the top part of the ship and they're fearing for their lives. And they start asking themselves, what God out there is causing this calamity that's about to befall us? And it says that they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. And so they start to question Jonah, Who are you? Where are you from? What have you done to cause this calamity? And he finally relents and tells them, well, I'm a Hebrew and uh, I worship the Lord God and I've decided that I'm going to run from him. And they're like, yeah, that's not good. Uh, So we don't want to do anything bad to you. So we'll try to get the ship to land. Let's try to run the ship off of the off of the sea, get to land so that maybe they can escape things. But the storm rages all the more, and that's not going to be a possible uh, thing to do. And so these guys, eventually, they realize uh, that Jonah's God means business. And so they start to pray to him. And they say, effectively, uh, please don't hold us accountable for this guy's life, but... We're really thinking that we probably should throw him over the ship since he told us to. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jonah wants to get away from God so bad that he is willing to be thrown overboard and into the sea. Want to get away? Sorry. It's like, so, they, so, so they pray this prayer and they, and they, they do it. They throw him overboard. And he starts to sink and sink and sink. And by the end of chapter one, we get this little verse that says that God provided a big fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah stayed in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. It's great Airbnb situation for him. And so in chapter two, which Didi took us through last week as well, We get this moment where inside of the fish, Jonah prays this prayer. And the prayer is really, really interesting because a lot of what Jonah says in the prayer is is in past tense. And the reason that it's that way is because Jonah's not praying to get out of the fish. Jonah's actually praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God for providing the fish. In fact, all of the language in Jonah's prayer Talks about the experience of sinking into the sea more and more and more. He talks literally about the ebb and flow of the water. He talks about the, the 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 darkness. He talks about seaweed wrapping around his head. And so he prays this prayer, and it's a prayer of thanksgiving and a hint of repentance in there. And and finally, at the end of the uh, of the chapter. Um, One of the best and most visual parts of the story, it says that that God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out. Just sit and think about that for about five seconds. Yeah, that's disgusting. So he's on land. That's where we find him in chapter three. Now, before we get to chapter three, though, I want to read the last couple verses of Jonah's prayer before he's vomited out. He says this, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's attitude is no doubt filled with thanksgiving for not being stuck in the depths of the sea to drown. And while there is a repentant undertone to Jonah's prayer, as we heard last week, Jonah doesn't exactly have a posture of humility toward God in this prayer. What he's in effect saying is, I'm not as bad as those idol worshipers out there, and that's why you saved me. You saved me because I deserved it. And that's going to come in really handy to remember as we look at chapter three, because I think chapter three of Jonah, even though the ending of the book is fantastic and you should come back for the next two weeks. Well, I think it's fantastic. It's kind of a little bit of a twist. But anyway, I don't want to spoil it for you. But chapter three really, really highlights the crux of the story. And so keep that in mind that Jonah has that lack of humility in his prayer as we read what happens in chapter 3. So starting at verse 1, following along with me on the screen here, this is what chapter 3 of Jonah says. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know why, but I imagine Jonah's kind of in like a Paul Revere situation. The redcoats are coming. But anyway, that's, sorry. The Ninevites believed God a fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But people and animals be covered with sackcloth. I can't talk today. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, if you are following along at home or keeping score of the story so far, there are some really, really interesting parallels in the story and a key difference. The first of the parallels comes in the very beginning of chapter three and the very beginning of chapter one. Notice that God has told Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. In the very beginning of the book, we're introduced to Jonah and God says, go to Nineveh and he goes on the run. This time he's been vomited out of a fish on a dry land and he has nowhere to go. Literally, he tried to have himself drowned in the sea and God wouldn't relent. I want to talk about the relentless pursuit of God in this story. Yeah, he's not letting up. And while Jonah has that nice prayer of thanksgiving, God pulls all the punches. He doesn't say, oh, Jonah, be still my heart. Thanks for saying those nice words. No, Jonah's on land and immediately God says a second time, you're going to Nineveh. And there's no getting away from it. So this time Jonah goes. And another parallel happens in this story in the response of the Ninevite people Their response is very similar to the response of the sailors on the boat in chapter 1. When they see the might of God, when they hear the word of God, when they recognize who God is, how enormous he is, how great he is, they respond favorably to God. The people on the ship, it says after they threw Jonah overboard and the, the storm stopped raging, They actually offered sacrifice to God. A God, mind you, that they didn't know in the first place because they were just going through the entire pantheon of gods they could come up with until they landed on Jonah. Now, in this case, the Ninevites apparently are these big, bad people in this incredibly large city with all sorts of evil. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a little bit of overtones here with Nineveh. They're, they're, They're just... They're beyond saving, it feels like, in the story. And so God is going to destroy them. And yet, when they hear the word of God, not just the word of Jonah, by the way, because the story specifies that Jonah's going to speak God's words to Nineveh. Jonah's just basically the conduit here. They hear the word of God, and they, from the least to the greatest, repent. Repent. But then there's one difference when it comes to parallels in this story. And that's why I wanted you to capture the lack of humility Jonah has. The sailors in chapter 1 had humility before God and turned to God offering sacrifices. Jonah, on the other hand, despite running from God in a very active sense, still feels that he got what he deserved by being saved from the sea because he's not like all these bad idol worshipers. And yet, what well, we find out is the Ninevites upon hearing God, they put on sackcloth and ashes. And if you don't know what sackcloth and ashes means, this is what it means. Sackcloth was a very kind of rough and coarse uh, sort of attire. So you take on the nice, and it's really, really brought home when the king does it because he's got his fancy kingly robes. He takes them all off and he puts on this scratchy, rough, Thing that you don't want to wear. I I would make it kind of akin to like if you're having a real down day, you know, and you really want to really let loose to tell how you truly feel. You put a sad song on in the car, then you really cry. That's what sackcloth is. It's an outward expression of what's going on inside. And then in the ashes. Well, that's just throwing ashes on yourself. And then apparently the king not only throws the ashes on himself, but he sits in the dust of the ashes. It's an outward show of what is going on inwardly. And the reason that I can say it's an outward show of what's going on inside is because of what happens in verse 10. It says specifically that when God saw what they did, what's the what they did? They put on sackcloth and ashes. When he saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. This is a God that sees beneath the surface, He can see below the skin and he can see that a heart change has gone on in the Ninevite people from the king all the way down to the least of the people. And when he sees that inward change along with the outward mode of the sackcloth and ashes, what does he do? He relents and does not destroy them. And I love the fact that in the king's decree, it points out, he literally says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that, he will not, so that we will not perish. Whatever Jonah preached, and we only get one line of the sermon. It's basically in 40 days, you're all doomed. Great sermon. One day, I'm just going to come in here and do one line and walk away. I mean, if that's all it takes, Jonah, why did you even run in the first place? Anyway, that's beside the point. He's got to have said more, but I can tell you what he didn't tell them. He didn't tell them, if you turn, God will spare you. And that's the beauty of what's going on with the Ninevite people. They don't know if they're going to be spared, but they're convicted by the word of God that Jonah preached, and it causes inward change that has outward expression in sackcloth and ashes. And that really drives home the point that I want us to remember today from this story of Jonah. And it'll come into full fruition uh, in in the last chapter when we look at that over the next two weeks. But this is the thing I want us to remember this morning God desires change that overflows, not just doing what you're told. God desires change that overflows, not just doing what you're told. See, that's the key is that Jonah eventually does relent and he goes to, to Nineveh. But the only reason he went is because he didn't have a choice. God was going to continue to mandate that he goes there. And yet, the people that turn their hearts toward God in the story, whether it's the sailors on the ship or whether it's the Ninevites in the great city, they didn't have to change their hearts toward God but they do. And that's, that's the beauty of the story because it is the, the, it is the supposed man of God, the prophet, the speaker of God's words that should be the one that gets this heart change thing. And he's actually kind of the person we're not supposed to follow the example of in this story but I won't say any more of it. You can come back next week to see that. I want us to remember that God desires change that overflows, not just doing what you're told. And in order to land that point this morning, I want to bring up a story from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a story where Jesus is, is teaching, and, and I gotta be honest with you, I just wanted to have fun today and talk about judgment, because it's fun. There's this story where Jesus talks about the idea of the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne of judgment and separating the people as if a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I'm going to stop here before I read this and tell you that I don't know if you guys are like me, but sometimes there are things in life that should be painfully obvious to you, but you need somebody else to tell you for it to be obvious. This happens a lot in my house. Like I'll like discover something, uh, like some sort of you, know, you know, light bulb moment, and then my wife will be like, "You know, I told you two weeks ago that." And I'm like, "Oh, OK, I have to give credit then, because it's true she did, and I just didn't listen until two weeks later. But anyway, so this happens a lot to me, but it also happened with relation to this passage in Matthew. And the person that supplied the aha moment for me in this passage was a former professor of mine. His name's Dr. John Weatherly. And he was writing an article for a magazine called The Christian Standard. And it's posted on their website if you ever want to look up the article. And he's basically writing an article about this passage that we're going to look at. And the thing is, is it's one of those passages that we read it and we look for a lot of things that we're not supposed to be paying attention to and we miss the part we should see. And so I wanted uh, for you to enjoy with me the lesson that I learned from, from reading this article. And so let's look at Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 real quickly. This is what Jesus says. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, the way that many of us might read this passage is we might come up with a question. Who are the least of these that come into my life that I should do these things for so that I'm doing them as if they are done for Jesus? A lot of us read this passage that way. Many scholars who have written on this passage go that direction in terms of interpreting it the bad thing about going that direction, though, is there's another story in the Gospels um, where Jesus responds to, a, to a, a, a teacher of the law who asks him a question, um, you know, uh, uh, who, is a, who is my neighbor? And when Jesus tells the story to turn the question on him, the story that Jesus tells, which we often call the story of the Good Samaritan, ends up telling the person how to be a good neighbor rather than focusing on who is my neighbor. And so if we start asking, well, who is the least of these, we're asking a question that Jesus wouldn't want us asking. And this is what my former professor said. He said that there's a common theme in this story. And the common theme is this. Both the people on the right, the sheep, and the people on the left, the goats, ask the same question of the king. Lord, when did we, or Lord, when did we not? They are oblivious to the good deeds they did or oblivious to the ones they didn't do. And that's the point of Jonah 3. You see, Jonah, in the story, the prophet of God is fully capable of doing the outward sign of obedience. He's capable of the behavior modification. He would walk in the coffee shop and see the sign that says, in a world where you can be, whatever you want, be kind. He would see that and he'd say, well, I'm going to be kind today. But the kind of change that God wants from his people, from those that choose to follow Jesus is a change that God stirs up within and that overflows in every aspect of life. So much so that you're not walking around in life asking who are the least of ease or who are my neighbor that I have to be good to so I can get off easy and not have to worry about it the rest of the time. Instead, the kind of change that God wants to do in our lives through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit is a change that just is a natural overflow Of the change work that God is doing within those of us that believe. And when that happens, we're not asking constantly, well, who are the least of these that I've got to be good to? Who's the neighbor that I have to be kind to? It just becomes a natural progression of the work that God is continuing to do each and every day to help us to grow more and more like his son, Jesus. And the beauty of the story of Jonah is it's the, the man of God that doesn't get that. And it's the people that were far off. The people that, in fact, Jonah said that uh, effectively uh, he is nothing like because they worship, you know, worthless idols and turn away from God. He's, he's the pious one and the rest of the people are all bad. Well, the thing is, is that God and God alone does the work to make somebody in his image. You don't just get to pull your shoestrings up or your bootstraps up and decide, I'm going to be kind today. Because that's just behavior modification and it runs out. Because tomorrow when you wake up with a headache and you think, ah, oh, this is not a good day already, and you don't run into the sign in the coffee shop, you are got to go right back to being the way you were before you saw the sign. But when you follow Jesus and God gets a hold of you, And you respond to his word and his work in your life, suddenly there's daily change every day, every day, every day. And that's the kind of change God wants. God desires change that overflows, not just doing what you're told. See, the point of the Matthew story isn't even whether or not I'm a goat or a sheep. We can get hung up on that thing. Sure, we all want to get into heaven, but God's plan is to change us in the here and now. Heaven is just the reward for a life of persevering in faith. It's not something you make a one-time decision on, you get your ticket and you just forget it. God desires change that overflows, not just doing what we're told. And so my prayer for us today as a people is that we hear the story of Jonah, that we recognize the kind of change God wants, that we recognize that while God is an enormous God, a miraculous God, a God of judgment and wrath, he is also a God of grace and compassion. And it is by that grace and compassion that he changes each and every one of us that follow his son. And so let's be focused on the things that God wants us to focus on. Let's lean into that God that is all powerful, all good, all graceful. Lean into him so that the change that he wants to see in our lives can overflow in the way that we live, the words and the deeds that we do and say. Because, (laughs) as the king of Nineveh said, who knows? Maybe we'll get to be sheep instead of goats. I'm just kidding about that last part. There's assurance and all that stuff, but I just wanted to scare you today and then go into prayer. So (laughs) let's pray together. God, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for the, the goodness and grace and compassion that you've shown us ultimately in your son, Jesus. That he took care of the sin problem that we have so that we don't have to live in a world and live under a worldview that says we have to be the change ourselves That we have to look for the signs and just force ourselves to be kind, but instead, through your son Jesus and through your spirit, we can allow your work within us to help change us, to help bring about the fruit of the spirit in our lives. So that we go about life honoring you in word and deed without even really giving a, a thought to even doing it. And so, God, I pray that for those of us that, that know Jesus, that have chosen to follow him, I pray, God, that our focus will remain on him and on your spirit, that we will, as Paul said, walk and step with the spirit in our lives so that that change can continue uh, to come about in our lives. And for those in this room uh, that don't yet know you or those in our lives uh, that we have in our sphere of influence that don't know you, I pray, God, that by our example of faith, And by the the change that overflows, that that we will be a light to the world that needs you and that you will pull them up out of the darkness uh, because of what they see in us, Lord. Uh, We love you and we just thank you for being good to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can find out more about us on the web at mtcarmelchurch.org.